This is The Red Line, where we interview three big geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. On this program, I've covered nuclear war, genocides, private militaries, and biological weapons. And I don't think I've ever covered a subject that has scared me more than this week's subject does. Governments regularly run drills and exercises for things like earthquakes, hurricanes, and nuclear attacks. But the two things most governments consistently fail in these tests are pandemics and cyber attacks. And this week, we take a look at just how unprepared for the next wave of cyber warfare we really are. And when I started to write this piece, I was trying to look for an analogy for the US's situation towards cyber warfare, and I came across a really good one. When it comes to cyber warfare, the United States is a giant castle with towers and arches and walls that are 100 feet tall, with a screen door on the side for people to just wander into. Because with this new frontier of war, it doesn't matter how tall your walls are, if you can just sneak through the back. Even just this week, we saw how Russians shutting down one pipeline with ransomware caused chaos at fuel pumps throughout the United States. And if that is the chaos when one pipeline gets shut down, what will be the result when entire city grids go down? Well, the internet doesn't connect up. But cyber attacks can be far more sophisticated than this. And one of the best known cyber attacks was the Stuxnet incident in 2010. To give you a bit of background, in 2010, Iran had begun to enrich uranium at some of their facilities on the pathway to create a nuclear bomb. The United States, after five years of development, managed to infect a staff member's computer at the enrichment facility and then backdoor into the Iranian network. From there, they planted the Stuxnet viruses in the centrifuges, the devices that enrich the uranium. This virus was sophisticated enough to patch itself in a way that it could not be detected by the Iranians. These centrifuges are supposed to spin in around 450 rotations a minute, but in the middle of the night, the virus was activated, and the centrifuges were commanded to spin at 2,000 RPM, and then spin at 4 RPM, and then 2,000 RPM, and then spin at 4 RPM, until eventually they destroyed themselves and crippled the facility. The virus was so sophisticated that all the dials and measuring instruments the Iranians were looking at at the time were recording everything as perfectly normal. The scientists in the facility had no idea what was going on until the facility had destroyed itself. No guns, no planes, no bombs. This was done with just a computer. Just a virus had taken out an Iranian nuclear facility. But this raises an interesting question. Is what the US did there war? Or is it just hacking? If it had been planes that dropped bombs that achieved the exact same result, it would probably be seen as a full act of war. But because this is such a new theatre, everything kind of gets a bit murky. A grey zone. Where nations don't know how far they can push things, and how quickly other nations may consider to respond to a cyber attack with conventional weapons. So this week we look into the complex field that is cyber warfare. What the next wave will bring, and just how dangerous the rules being in this grey zone could be in the long run. And to introduce us to this topic, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. The Grey Area 
Right. Well, what people talk about as cyber warfare is really just warfare where cyber operations take part, uh, are a part of it. Um, and I think that there have been several countries that have talked publicly about how they view cyber operations as a part of warfare. So the US, uh, the UK and Australia, and they've talked about combining some sort of cyber effect into a traditional um, military operation where they blow things up. So one US example, they had an ISIS command post and they knew the primary command post and they could have just blown it up. Um, but they knew that there was secondary command posts that they didn't know where they were. Uh, so they disrupted the communications in the primary and forced the insurgents to move to the secondary posts, which they were able to then identify and blow up. So that shows that there's kind of, you get something new from using some sort of cyber capability. They, they didn't know where those command posts were. Um, now, having said that cyber warfare in, a, in and of itself doesn't exist, it, it'll become a regular tool that certainly advanced militaries will use every time they're thinking of, uh, of a traditional military operation. It'll be part and parcel of the standard tools that they'll try and bring to bear. And you can imagine situations where it actually makes a huge difference if you can disable you know, the, the power going to a, an enemy command post, that seems like that could make a huge difference in a particular conflict uh, or in a particular battle. Um, so those are the sorts of things militaries will be trying to do is, is find those points of leverage that they can disable with a cyber operation. Tom Uren is a senior analyst for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute specialising in cyber warfare. Tom has worked with the Department of Defence, the CSIRO, and has published a number of great papers on the issue. He joins us today. The other point I guess I should make is that there's a kind of cyber contest going on all the time. Um, so the US in particular has this strategy of what they call persistent engagement, where they're trying to disrupt their adversaries all the time. So I wouldn't call that warfare. I'd just call that competition and, and engagement. So when it comes to cyber warfare, who are the major players? Which nations are getting very involved in this new theatre of conflict? So the countries that get named typically are the US. There's a bunch of US allies, um, the UK, Canada and Australia are kind of, especially the UK mentioned as part of what's called the Five Eyes Alliance uh, with New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand hardly ever gets mentioned. Um, but then the main actors that people worry about, at least from our point of view, is Russia, China, North Korea and Iran. They're all very, uh, in different ways, quite aggressive. Um, and then for countries that punch above their weight, people talk about Israel. Um, so there's different... Um, I break those down into different categories. So the US and the Five Eyes countries, uh, Canada, Great Britain, Australia and New Zealand, um, have a kind of legal way of approaching it where they focus on government and military espionage. Um, they incorporate offensive cyber capabilities under a kind of inter international humanitarian law framework into 
uh, rules of engagement that are compliant with international law. Um, and that's kind of the way they operate. China has a huge cyber espionage capability that they deploy far more broadly than just government and military. They do that, but they also steal intellectual property for um, economic gain. Um, North Korea and Iran, North Korea in particular is kind of a wild card in that their capabilities are deployed particularly to uh, raise money. So they steal, uh, they do just traditional, well, traditional, they do cyber, what I would call criminal activities and steal, try and steal money from banks. They also do bizarre things like try and protect the reputation of their dear leader. Uh, so they've attacked a movie theatre because the movie theatre Sony Pictures Entertainment was about to release a satirical movie about Kim, Kim Jong-un um, and they, uh, threatened, they, they extorted the movie theatre and said, we'll release all this kind of embarrassing material if you don't, if you go ahead and release the film. Um, and then Iran, uh, Iran is interesting because they've done some of those kind of destructive things that, that North Korea has done. And I think it's mostly because they feel like they're in a situation where they're really under pressure from the US and this is one way they can kind of strike back. Uh, they've also engaged in a lot of intellectual property theft as well. So those are probably the main players that people talk about, but there's many other countries that have espionage capabilities. That's really pretty common. And there's also uh, many European countries that are thinking about how to engage um, cyber capabilities or incorporate cyber capabilities into their military operations. With nuclear weapons, it's quite a high entry point to get involved in that theater. It's very expensive and very difficult to actually create nuclear weapons themselves. But what is the entry point like to get involved in nation state level cyber warfare? Who can get involved in this one? There's courses that are publicly available that you can learn about them and you can get some base level of capability um, uh, with just a few well-trained people. Um, so the real, I, I guess North Korea is an example where they went from nothing to quite a credible cyber capability in the matter of a decade. And it's really about deciding that you want to do it, that you want to dedicate the resources to doing it, to training people. Uh, in the case of North Korea, they, um, they, they did talent identification, so they identified promising students. They sent them overseas, gave them um, computer science degrees uh, and trained them in the right kinds of techniques in how to do this. Um, and so a kind of minimum capability is probably a team of no, you know, perhaps as few as six people. Um, and that'll get you started in the espionage game. I think um, the warfare game, um, so the distinction I would draw there is that you're trying to destroy something or disrupt something for a particular purpose. Um, it's easy to destroy things for fun in the sense that it's, it's easy to be a kind of spoiler where you get to some, um, so you get on a computer and you can, um, delete it so it doesn't work 
um, or it doesn't boot. But the, the hard part is to do that in a way that contributes to what you actually want to achieve militarily. And I think that's a far higher bar. But having said that, it's nothing like nuclear weapons. To sort of clear up a bit of a term here for us, what is the difference between offensive cyber weapons and defensive cyber weapons? The term is used very loosely in the media um, and, and, and just in general. So people talk about cyber attacks all the time when what they really mean is that some information was stolen. Um, so to the, the, the Western kind of definition, which I actually like, is that an offensive capability is something that disrupts degrades, denies, or destroys. So basically you're having an effect that means you can't use something or you can't use it as well. Um, so that's where I would draw a line. I would call something that does that, disrupts, degrades, denies, or destroys as an offensive operation. Um, other people use it to mean an, an espionage operation. Uh, so defensive, um, it's there's kind of lines of Gray, but defensive usually um, one definition is that it's operating inside your own network. So on the internet, it's you know a collection, a collection and a connection of many different networks, and some of those uh, you would own and control. Um, so if you if you take a Department of Defense, they own and control their own network. And so one definition of a defensive operation is that it's operating within your own network to try and make things uh, more secure. Um, the US in particular has this concept of defending forward where they try and do things that make them more secure by operating outside of their network. And it really comes down to how you think about, um, so for example, that might be working with an ally to um, identify threats in their network. Uh, so that would, from a US point of view, be defending forward. It's still a defensive activity. It's occurring outside your own network. Um, and a lot of defense is understanding what's going on. It's kind of situational awareness, detecting things that are anomalies um, and trying to figure out why they're occurring. Is it something you need to worry about? What should I do about it? One of the major complicating factors around cyber is attribution. When a plane with Russian Air Force symbols comes over and bombs you, it's pretty easy to identify who's responsible for that attack. But with cyber warfare, it's much more difficult. How hard is it to correctly attribute a cyber attack without blaming the wrong actors? Yeah, so there's a couple of different things that go into that. Um, one of them is that there's a whole industry uh, both in the private sector and also in government that tracks operations uh, and they identify what I call the fingerprints of an operation. So that might mean using a particular tool or using some particular um, place on the internet to launch from or a particular modus operandi. And there's each of those signals is not very significant on its own, but when you put them all together, you get quite a unique fingerprint. Um, so there's a whole industry that is about tracking that. Um, as that's gone on, um, people have gotten more cautious 
and that's a constant back and forth, I guess. So as people have realised that they've been tracked, they've tried to change their tactics to throw people off the scent. Um, it's very, very hard to change the way you do things all the time because that means you're having to learn new techniques all the time. Um, so there's a, a tension between being totally anonymous and being actually effective. Um, the other part is the is the intent. Um, and that's really the part that's very hard to hide because any operation that's really sophisticated requires a lot of work. And so when it requires a lot of work, there's very few people or groups that are willing to put that work in. Mostly um, groups have limited capacity in that they're driven by priorities. So if it's not in, in a, if, a, if a complex operation is not a high priority, you're just not going to do it because it's too much work for not enough payoff. So that's one of the other key things that helps determine or helps you think through who might be responsible. With attribution being nowhere near an exact science at the moment, how hard would it be for a country like China to attack the US, but make it look like it with the Iranians or the Russians and, and have the US blame the wrong person? Uh, I think it is hard but not inconceivable um and the way i think about it is that it's always possible so there's a kind of tier of um sophistication so at the top is russia and the us uh then perhaps china um and then uh north korea iran below that um it's always possible for the 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 countries at top um, at least theoretically possible for the countries at top to try and mimic the countries below. And that's because their, their kind of abilities encompass, they're like a superset of what's beneath them. So they can understand um, if, they, if they spend enough time and effort, understand, you know, almost everything about what a country who is less sophisticated does. And so I think it's at least theoretically possible to, to kind of mimic countries that are less advanced than you. Someone like China may launch up to 50,000 cyber attacks a day against the US, with the vast majority of those being unsuccessful, but a small percentage may be. And those viruses that do make it through can borrow into the system and await activation at a later date to carry out whatever their purpose was. Do you think these exploits that sit in the system may be part of a first strike package, the same way that Soviet deep state agents were placed in the US to be activated and blow up infrastructure in the event of the Cold War going hot? At least in the West, the military intelligence and cyber espionage agencies are, are really closely uh, linked. Um, so for example, in Australia, our Australian Signals Directorate sits within the, the, the defence portfolio. And traditionally, the, the sort of director of operations is actually a military person. And so that organisation has a strong support to military operations role. And the same, um, you know, the situation is the same but different in the UK uh, and the US. Um, and Part of that role is the intelligence function, and that's ongoing every day. Um, 
and you're doing it all the time. And so they have a suite of, you know, ways of working that they use every day because you need to gather intelligence every day. And that may be, you know, things like uh, what's the, you know, what's the, the posture of, uh, you know, the countries we're interested in, the military posture, you know, where are their units, how do they communicate, etc. Um, so the capabilities you have there, you use all the time. Then there's also another, I guess, in reserve function of what are we going to do if we actually come to blows? And that's the sort of thing that you would keep in reserve for that moment. Um, the situation in peacetime where you just kind of want to know that you can keep tabs on what's going on versus the situation in wartime where you want to be able to disrupt something is very, very different. And I think that um, there's kind of a balancing act. How much effort do you want to put into keeping day-to-day -day, um, intelligent, satisfying day-to-day -day intelligence requirements versus how much do you want to invest in the capabilities you need when war actually breaks out. And so I guess if you think that war is a long way off, you know, you're kind of investing in the day-to-day. -day. Um, I think the only reason you would stockpile a kind of group of exploits is, is we're worried about war breaking out and we want to have capabilities ready to go. Um, uh, but that actually takes quite a bit of effort. So you can imagine if you're trying to, um, you know, disrupt a military network, you've got to understand that network really well. And you need to understand how you would get into it, where you would disrupt it to have an effect. And it's the sort of capability you never ever use until the day you need to, to flick the switch. Um, and you don't use it because if you flick the switch beforehand, the, the other, other side figures out what's going on and just fixes it. And you're left without any capability at all. Building capabilities on cyber warfare is a bit of a double-edged sword. When it comes to testing missiles or nuclear weapons, you can use it on a training ground. You can let one of your allies in a proxy conflict use it and see how it goes. Or you can simply use it on another enemy. Take notes, improve, build upon. Once you fire the missile, it explodes and it becomes near impossible to reverse engineer it. So it's pretty safe when you launch it out there. With cyber warfare though, once you launch it, your opponent will not only have access to the code and be able to use it against you, but they will also be able to patch themselves against it, ready for next time, making it ineffective. It would be like walking through that screen door in the back of the castle. If someone was to see you do it, well, they'd simply just patch the screen door up. So everyone continues to build up stockpiles of these cyber weapons, not knowing how devastating or ineffective they might be. And to talk about this build-up and what the next stage of cyber warfare is, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Opening the Gates. Well, I think the next generation is going to look a lot like the current generation. And I think something that we forget is that cyber warfare is a quite a mature technology. Um, you know, it's been around for a long time. And one of the formative uh, events in cybersecurity was actually the movie War Games, which was released in the early 1980s. And that led to a formative uh, reevaluation of policy under the Reagan administration. So we've had cyber warfare for a long time. 
I think the difference, though, is that people have been waiting for this sci-fi, the science fiction kind of aspect of complete and total domination through cyberspace. And we're just not seeing that. And we haven't seen that over time. And the way uh, me and my co-authors talk about cyber um, conflict now is that it's either an enabler or it's a, a substitute meaning that it either helps ongoing operations, but it doesn't overall kind of change them, or they can substitute for other foreign policy options like sanctions or displays of force. So you see some states like Russia using cyber for disruption and harassment um, when they have no other capabilities. And you see other states like the United States being constantly attacked, but also being one of the best on the offense because they typically have tailored operations that fit with their overall doctrines of precision strike complexes. Brandon Villariano is a senior fellow specializing in cyber warfare for the Cato Institute, a senior advisor at the Cyberspace Solarium Commission and the author of the book, Cyber Strategy. Brandon is one of the leading experts when it comes to the cutting edge of cyber warfare, and he joins us today. Um, well, I, I think there would be two different ways to look at this, right? One would be normal operations, operations that just happen on a weekly basis, um, because a lot of these um, capabilities, a lot of these structures are bureaucracies. And bureaucracies have weekly meetings, they have do outs, they have projects. So sometimes it's a little bit about throwing the spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. And that's probably how solar winds and some other um, vulnerabilities happened over time. But on the other hand, there's also targeted packages connected to operations or campaigns. And that's a different style of operation. That's something like um, the state knows something's going to happen. The state knows that um, Iran has become more belligerent in the Middle East. They've shot down a drone then the foreign policy apparatus will go to the defense apparatus and say, what can you do? And they'll come up with a platform of targeted operations against very specific packages. So it really depends on the incident that motivates the action and what is going on. But I think, like I said, a lot of times we forget that a lot of cybersecurity happens in a bureaucracy. And a bureaucracy often has its own timeline and its own kind of course and ways of operation that typically don't necessarily match on top of foreign policy operations. But on the other hand, foreign policy operations and foreign policy crises can reshape what happens in a bureaucracy and mobilize bureaucracy to do very specific things. Would you compare cyber warfare to a kind of cat and mouse game where the offense gets better so the defense rises to meet that? So the offense gets better again, and then the defense rises to meet that again. You know, is that a fair comparison to uh, say for cyber warfare? Actually, I kind of reject the offense-defense framework, um, and I think one of the big reasons why is that in the international security literature, we have known for a long time that we have an issue of distinction, trying to figure out what is what, um, and it's tough to tell. Like, um, is a cyber operator, defender, or, or a offensive um, actor? And quite often, the best offensive actors are also the best defenders. So very often, I think our language is a bit stilted in terms of offense versus defense when it isn't necessarily like that. But in terms of phases of operations, in terms of planning, defense is a very specific um, enterprise in terms of targeting, uh, in terms of hardening targets and also denying opportunity for offensive operations. 
Whereas offensive operations, as I mentioned before, are often connected very distinctly to specific targets. So you can look at offense, defense that way, that there can be very specific targets, very specific operations. But in terms of how a bureaucracy works, offense and defense are not really necessarily distinguished. And it's tough to tell what is what. And in cyberspace, a great defensive weapon can also be a very great offensive weapon. And the best offensive teams are the best ones to tell you where your defenses are failing. So I think we have to expand our language a bit and rethink how we classify offense versus defense, because quite often in military affairs, uh, it's not that simple. An aircraft carrier is neither offensive or defensive. It's just a military platform and very much in the same way cybersecurity works, the, the exact same way. I want to try and get a bit of an idea on where the playing field is at when it comes to cyber warfare at the moment. So as an example, could China or Iran, for instance, hack into the US nuclear missile program or take control of a predator drone? Could something like this be taken control of by a foreign actor? Well, I, I would say pretty much everything is hackable. And I think that's one of our problems because the way we connect now, the way we communicate now was never built for security. And we never really rethought the nature of connections. And in terms of connectivity, having any sort of opening for communication, even if it's not on the internet, if it could be internally on an intranet or just a disconnected system, those machines are also hackable too. It just depends on the distance you're operating. So everything can be hackable. The key thing though, is to think about resiliency and cascading effects. So we all know that with cybersecurity, it only takes one weak link in the chain for actors to get into the system. If we look at the Russian or Chinese defense sector, we see that the government has almost complete control. But with the US defense networks, the private sector is far more integrated. Private companies are part of the chain, but often cut corners when it comes to cybersecurity to try and save money. After all, they do answer to shareholders. As an example, as much as most of the dams in the US are overseen by the federal government and federal inspectors, the actual upkeep and the running of the dams is largely done by private companies. So when we recently saw Iran hack into some of the US dams, it came to light that a number of them were still running Windows XP or Windows 2000, as the company didn't want to spend money on upgrades, arguing that even if they were to get the top of the line, it would be out of date in a few months. These are old systems that are very easy to hack and get into, but no money was spent to upgrade these. Do you think the US integration with the private sector is an inherent weakness compared to, let's say, Moscow or Beijing's approach to this? We do have some problems. And the main one I would say right now is breach notification. And Congress is currently working on breach notification law. But one of the issues is that there is no responsibility to tell anyone when you've been hacked. And that's a problem from a personal private consumer perspective, but it's also from a national security perspective because these initial attacks can be signs of much bigger attacks. So we need to have awareness. We need to have data. We need to have information. Uh, the FAA, anytime Harrison Ford gets in a plane crash, you know, he has to notify someone. 
if he's still alive. Uh, no one has to do that in cybersecurity. And part of the problem is liability protection because uh, we've even seen this happen, I believe, today, where someone who notified a company about a breach uh, was then sued because they made that breach public. So we need to have a better conception of information and data sharing in this space. And we just don't necessarily have that right now. And that is a big liability. The other thing is the distributed nature of the federal system, that schools, water plants, there are a lot of particularly ripe targets that don't have federal support, that don't have federal money, that are just supported by municipal city-based money. And that is not enough to support cybersecurity for a power plant, for a school, for a hospital. And we're seeing that become more critical as we're seeing more ransomware attacks over time. It's not that we have a ransomware pandemic. It's just that we know that there's a problem. We know that there's a solution, but we just don't have money to buy the vaccine. We don't have money to pay for the mitigation treatment because of the American system and how financing works. And do these faults in the private system act as a backdoor into the major infrastructure? And then that's a big problem. Like we saw recently at the power plant in Florida, the idea or the thought was, uh, the reporting was that they all shared a password of well, like five or six people. So these types of things happen quite a bit because there's really no motivation to establish security at a facility until you've been breached, until something bad happens. It's not until that happens do you realize that you need to change your policies and change your systems. So... That's the challenge we're working with right now, is that we know that a lot of things need to be fixed, but how do we do that when typically for human beings, you don't try and fix a problem until that problem becomes critical. So we need to think more about remediation and mitigation before these issues become critical issues. But even if you have great security, it still can't defend against basic human error. For an example, when the NSA ran an experiment in the United States, they dropped 200 USBs into government car parks, mostly car parks with defense ties. Over 60% of those USBs ended up being picked up and plugged into government computers, not by hackers looking to hurt the United States, but by government employees trying to be good Samaritans to try and return the USB. How do you protect against this kind of a problem? When even if you spend billions of dollars to build an external network with great security, a random USB can be plugged in, compromising your entire system by someone who just didn't know what they were doing. That's something inherent in human nature. There's always going to be behavioral problems, especially with human beings as they interact with technology. And one of the big issues that we have is a lot of these vulnerabilities or a lot of these problems come from people who are not digital natives, from people who didn't really grow up with uh, computers and that are coming very late in the game and just want access, not necessarily secure access. But as time goes on, the people who have become digital natives also become dependent and become very much complacent about security. And we don't necessarily think about the dangers in digital operations and how important it is to have secure logins, secure connections. Um, but I don't really know what's going to fix this. You know, people talk about AI, various you know chips, various you know USB devices, um, facial recognition. All these things have vulnerabilities. 
I think the, the central lesson we have to understand is that anything inherently connected to a network is going to be vulnerable to mis- and disinformation. It's going to be vulnerable to manipulation, to social engineering, because we are human beings and we cannot necessarily remove the human from the loop. So we have to work within that system and maintain redundancy and resiliency when humans invariably do fail. With this in mind, is there some logic in things like the US nuclear launch sequence being kept on big floppy disks or you know, the Taliban passing messages to each other being delivered by envelopes and motorcycles? You know, is this the only way to be truly secure and not be hacked? There is some logic to that. There is some logic to the idea that even the Russians bought thousands of typewriters a few years ago. Um, there is some logic to going back to how things were done because these things are not inherently hackable because they're not digitized. They're not on networks. But there are consequences for that. You know, and it's just like Jay, you know, G.R. Martin, you know, works on an old computer that's not connected to the Internet. He's very much secure from hacking, but also when things go wrong, when things break, there are no parts to replace this stuff. There's no normal knowledge to how to fix things that are ancient. Um, and that becomes a problem. So it's a trade off and there's no easy solution. We can't just roll back the history of time and say, let's go back to the 60s when we didn't have digital connectivity because, um, you know, the Pandora is already out of the bottle. Um, we can't put it back and we just need to teach people how to interact better. We need to design systems better so they are hardened and resilient. I want to talk about a few of the players here. Russia is quite big into cyber warfare blowing up Ukrainian infrastructure, attacking Estonian communications and banks, hacking US servers. So I want to get a better idea on what Russia is trying to achieve here. What is Russia's cyber strategy? Is it more geared towards harassment of countries or is it more preparation for a first strike capability? They could use it as a first strike method, but we've never seen them really do that to any effectiveness so far. Um, They've targeted Ukrainian energy networks. They've targeted Georgian networks. But it's not been very coercive, as we say, in the field. It's not been able to achieve an effect where you're changing the behavior in the target. Russians have typically been best at harassment, at disruption, as I say. And that can be dangerous and could be problematic, especially as we saw during the 2016 election. But quite often, harassment and disruption are things that need to be handled internally, that this is an American conversation about um, receiving disinformation and misinformation. It's not necessarily that the Russians are so good at it. It's more that the target, when the Russians are able to succeed, because the target is so bad at it. And that's the challenge quite often. And do you think the Russians are ahead or behind the U.S. when it comes to cyber capabilities? Oh, they're far behind. Um, they are overestimated and uh, overprojected in terms of their capabilities. Like I mentioned, they never really use cyber for coercive means. They have failed entirely in Ukraine and Georgia. They have caused global disruption, particularly through um, uh, NotPetya, uh, targeting Ukrainian tax software. But um, they're not as precise as the Americans are. And one of the problems with the Russians is they keep getting caught. 
um, you know, we've been going back and forth uh, between the SVR and the GRU, you know, the Foreign Intelligence Service, like the CIA and the Military Intelligence Service, both getting caught and both kind of laughing at each other. We have seen Russian operatives log into Twitter, you know, secret Twitter accounts from the Starbucks across the street from the GRU headquarters. We've seen them communicate with Playboy models and Twitter DMs. They are not very good and they're very much overestimated in the community. Well, what about the Chinese? Do you think they're overestimated as well? I, I think they're properly estimated, but I think what we don't understand about China is that they are more concerned with domestic unity and domestic harmony than they are with external adventurism. And because of that, and because of this massive, you know, was 1.6 billion population that's online, they have a lot more internal challenges than they have external challenges. So as much as we fear Chinese operations and Chinese power, uh, they have bigger things to fear from their own internal challenges. Obviously, comparing it to these two, how does the United States hold up? Is it more aggressive than China and Russia, or is it more passive than what we'd expect? The U.S. is one of the most precise players, and this goes to their kind of overall ethos of being very particular and following along precision strike complexes about being very specific about the targets and about being very specific about not wasting opportunities because you don't want to get caught, that you don't want to be blamed for these things because the biggest issue the United States has is that they are throwing rocks in a glass house, that the United States is intensely vulnerable to cyber operations of all shapes and forms, as we see now with hospitals and schools being attacked, because it is such it is so dependent on digital networks. But because of this, we have a particular style of behavior. And that's held true for you know, 20, 30 years that we've been using cyber operations in the United States. But one of the challenges that we're coming into now is that, um, and this is not just true of cyber, it's also true of AI, that leadership now knows about cyber, they know about AI, and they act like AI and cyber is a easy solution. It's, you know, the steak doesn't taste good. Let's throw some salt on it. Let's throw some cyber on it. And we make jokes about this quite often, but a lot of the leadership kind of thinks that we can just throw a little bit of cyber on something and fix the problem. And it's not that easy. And when you want to attack someone, you need to spend years and hundreds of millions of dollars to conduct that operation. And that's what the Stuxnet operation was. It was an intense bureaucratic initiative that had a very specific target. On the other hand, when the United States tries to use cyber against ISIS, they find they're not that all successful. That a target that doesn't depend on the internet, that isn't necessarily using digital connectivity in the way other states do, there's no cyber solution to that problem. Yet we try and use the cyber tool to deal with the problem that doesn't even have a cyber access point. So I think one of the challenges we have is leadership. And this is something that's happened through the history of innovation is that innovation is both a top down and a bottom down issue. That the leadership needs to understand how cybersecurity works and what it can do. And it also needs to understand from the, you know, the troop level perspective of how to get things done. 
But right now we have a leadership problem when quite often and you know, quite frankly, our leaders are focusing on cyber fiction as a way to learn about cybersecurity and not about the actual research on how these operations are conducted. conducted. And that's a big problem because we cannot depend on fiction to tell us what's going to happen in the future because quite often, obviously, fiction is wrong. When war changes, the rules of war change. World War I and the industrialization of warfare brought us the concept of total war. World War II brought us the concept of terror or strategic bombing. And the Cold War brought us nuclear war. With each of these developments, the rules of war changed. For instance, the US understood that invading East Berlin would likely elicit a nuclear retaliation from the Soviets, wiping millions from the planet. Something not dreamed of 40 years earlier. With the new frontier of cyber war though, the rules are again changing. For example, if the US were to have flown over Iran and bombed that nuclear enrichment facility with a Tomahawk missile, it likely would have been interpreted as an act of war and elicited a conventional response from Iran. But because it was a cyber attack, no one really knew how to respond. When the Russians blew up a Ukrainian power grid, no one knew what the correct response should be. What are the rules for cyber warfare? And how much damage can a nation inflict on another nation before they trigger a retaliation? Well, to talk about that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. The First Strike Every country's national and economic security depends on cybersecurity. We certainly learned at 9-11 that national and economic security were intertwined. And the impact of a major attack on critical infrastructure and how that could ripple through industry sectors and the civilian population and society as a whole became very clear. Jody Westby is a cybersecurity fellow and CEO of the company Global Cyber Risk. She is also the chair of the Computer Crime Committee and is the co-author of the UN publication, The Quest for Cyber Peace. It's fair to say that Jody is a pretty major expert when it comes to cybersecurity, as she joins us today. Everyone's looking for vulnerabilities. Most people really don't understand the information that can be obtained by just out there scanning on the web and uh, pinging against sites. And so anytime they'll find a vulnerability, they will exploit it. So an example for you is when the shadow brokers in night 2015 or 16, I think it was 2016, they released a treasure trove of cyber offensive weapons and capabilities that were stolen from NSA. And they didn't do that just once. They did that five times. And so what they did was really provided to the entire cyber criminal community, but to every nation state and to every terrorist group, some of the most sophisticated cyber offensive weapons that were developed. Now, within that were tools that NSA had developed because they had found vulnerabilities in software that they never told the vendors about because they wanted to exploit those 
vulnerabilities so they could use it for intelligence gathering or covert attacks or something like that. Well, that was outrageous because they were putting every single company at risk that was using that software just so they could do intelligence gathering. And so what happened? The shadow brokers released this treasure trove of, of cyber tools. And some of those tools were used in 2017 in the WannaCry and NotPetya attacks. Uh, those were some of the most serious attacks we've had um, prior to SolarWinds. And so um, it just shows that once you have the capability, then, and it gets out there, um, then it's going to be used by everybody. So the companies that were running these systems using this vulnerable software, the vendors suddenly, they were told, oh my God, then they had to run around and create patches, push those patches out. Everybody had to patch, but in the meantime, the bad guys could take, could go out and, and surf and ping against systems and find out who's running out of support or this vulnerable software. And that began the clickless attack. You no longer had to ask someone or trick them into clicking on something or to opening an attachment. You didn't have to do anything. You just found companies running this out of support and vulnerable or vulnerable software and exploit the vulnerability that NSA had found and not told anybody about. So that's how it can be so dangerous. So once these cyber attacks are in the system, do they have to brute force attack right there and then, or can they just sit in the background and wait for years till eventual activation? And also I was hoping you could take us through what zero-day exploits are. Uh, zero-day exploits are exploits that haven't been identified before. So within that treasure trove of NSA tools that were released, the exploits that the NSA had discovered in software and not told the vendors about, um, those were zero-day exploits. No one knew about them um, prior to that very moment. When it gets discovered, then it's no longer zero-day. Um, that, that's a zero-day exploit. And so the, um, the attacks that um, the, the criminals are constantly examining, scanning, working on finding vulnerabilities in the software, and so they will exploit those. One thing I should mention is with Stuxnet, it's my understanding that this was like put on a USB stick and passed to someone that we paid to put it into the Iranian system. Because that system was air-gapped, it wasn't connected to the internet. So we had to find a way to get into that system. But since then, it escaped and went into what we call the wild, which it got out on the internet. And now we have lots of variations of that. So, so these, um, this malware can, just like what we hear with COVID now, it variants. There are variants of it uh, that can continue. The first part of what you asked me about uh, dealt with the. Uh, Zero, how long can these attacks stay in a system? And, and they can stay in a system for a long time. One of the things that, that nation states especially are good at is stealth. And they will move slowly in a system. They can change settings. They can turn off antivirus. 
they they can erase their own tracks and so it can be very difficult to detect these um this this malware especially if it's zero day and it doesn't have a signature so they you know it it has been estimated that it would took 18 months for the company to 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 find some of the sophisticated malware and and now the exfiltration malware has become so sophisticated you know with ransomware now the first thing it's doing is going and finding the backups the, and it and it's exfiltrating data and it's doing this very stealthily and quietly so that it's not detected so it can exfiltrate a lot of data before it ever gets back in there and starts encrypting and doing anything where you start finding out about it so if you decide you aren't going to restore this you can't restore the system and you don't want to pay then they have something to extort companies with to say then we're going to post your data on the on the internet we're going to notify your customers uh that we have your data some of these criminals even set up a site and said here's a list of the companies that we have their data and they won't pay and so uh, the the capabilities of malware have gotten very sophisticated and especially with respect to the exfiltration of data one of the more complicated things to do is attribution proving who is responsible for a cyber attack what is the process and how hard is it to try and prove let's say china was responsible for a certain attack attribution is very difficult in this um day and it is in part that we don't have a legal framework that accommodates cyber investigations when you're investigating a cyber attack you can only find out what's in your system then you can see, well, it came from here. To go to here, you can't just go into another third-party system. Or you can't just go into the provider and get the information. So there's a process. We say, well, cyberspace has no borders. No, but law enforcement, police, uh, uh, and prosecutors, um, government officials, diplomats, they all have to stop at borders and ask for assistance. If you're, even if you're in the U.S. and you need to go to the next, maybe the, an attack came through a third-party company, you can't backhack into that third-party company to chase this, this attack. You have to go to the third-party company. You have to advise them. You have to ask them if they'll cooperate with you. They may or may not. You alternatively can get law enforcement involved and law enforcement can then start getting court orders and uh, uh, to, to ask communication providers to provide data um, or, you know, to, to obtain information to help. If you don't go to law enforcement, you probably need a court order to get some of the information you need. Then you're going to have to file some sort of civil case so that you can start issuing subpoenas. And the companies don't respond as quickly to those as they do to law enforcement. So it's a big problem. When you try to figure out attribution, it, it involves trace, tracking and tracing from hop to hop to hop to figure out what happened. And that, that involves going through a bunch of communication providers. 
So it's a difficult process by the nature of packet switching and how it works. It's very difficult because we don't have cybercrime laws that are consistent around the globe. And that's not just what's called a cybercrime, the substantive provisions of the law. It's the procedural provisions and how you how you even go to a company and get the information or or require them to provide it. And the process for that and chain of custody and all of those procedural issues that are so important. So now, and, and I've been talking about this for the last 20 years. It's still that way. Um, we have some countries with harmonized uh, laws about cybercrime, the European Council of Union uh, Cybercrime Convention. Um, a number of countries, including the U.S., have signed on to that. It provides for um, a, a basic treaty for the substantive and procedural provisions. But there are 192 countries in the United Nations, 230-some countries and territories connected to the Internet. So if you don't have global cooperation, it's very difficult to track and trace. And if a party doesn't want to cooperate, then you're stuck. When Remember way back when, when Russia attacked Estonia? And that was tracked back to an IP address at the Kremlin. But the Russians would simply, as the Estonian minister said, they simply wouldn't pick up the phone. Well, how hard is it to misattribute something for, let's say, China to hack a dam but blame it on Iran? How hard is that to do? Um, I mean, the nation states particularly are very sophisticated. And that's why the nation state attacks have increased so much. I believe is because of this release of the shadow brokers and also Vault 7 out of WikiLeaks about 2016, same time frame. They introduced a, a load of cyber capabilities from the CIA. When you release that kind of stuff out for the whole population, to the whole bad actor population, then you're necessarily, you're going to face a lot more sophisticated attacks. And, you know, there's another thing going on here. Companies still are not spending what they need to spend on cybersecurity. And this is why ransomware, ransomware has just run off the page. And the attacks, especially in the last year, have gone up 400%. It's just a perfect storm that's been created for the criminals. And there, and there are big problems at many different points. And therefore, you have serious issues with trying to, to turn the tide because you have uh, workers working from home. You have companies that haven't spent on cybersecurity. You have law, uh, laws and, and legal frameworks that are inconsistent globally. You have law enforcement that don't have any trained people to investigate cybercrimes. And so you've created a perfect storm. None of those things are easy to fix. And the criminals, they know what countries ha have weak cybercrime laws. They know what countries don't have trained law enforcement. They know all of these things, and that's where they weave their attacks through, and that's where they store data. They may be, they may be hacking and exfiltrating data and storing it in several different countries but they know the jurisdictions that are the best for them to operate on. There are very few clients I can even think of that 
I've asked if they knew the cybercrime laws and the jurisdictions where they do business, and they look at me with a blank stare. No, they don't know. The cybercriminals know. They know more about the legal frameworks globally than the, than the companies. So it is, it is a situation that is, as I said, it's a perfect storm for cybercrime, and that's what we're seeing. This is a fear that many people have, that a cyber attack may be blamed on the wrong person. So let's put an example out there. Let's play out a real-life war game here. We know foreign actors have been inside the US power and dam systems. So let's say they exploit that. For the sake of the argument, let's say China opens up a dam in Pennsylvania and floods a valley in the middle of the night, killing 3,000 people. It's certainly not out of the realm of reality. The Chinese then leave fingerprints in the code and make it look like it was Iran, backing up with misinformation on social media to indicate the same thing. The US populace will be furious and look for retribution much like they did in the months after 9-11, with everyone pointing toward Iran based on the information they have at hand. For a politician in a crucial swing state like Pennsylvania, it would be political suicide to say things like, well, we can't be 100% sure. Let's play it safe. We will send a strongly worded letter to whoever it is because they know for sure that the media will label them as weak and apologists for the terrorism. This would be particularly devastating if it were done during the ramp-up period to a US election, which comes every four years. Politicians, based on what the people feel, might feel responsible to go to war with a country they're not even sure did the attack. And with one fell swoop, a bad actor can push the US into an incredibly costly and bloody damaging conflict with Iran, all for the cost of hacking one computer terminal. This gray zone of warfare is still largely to be worked out, but for someone who may have a good idea about it, we turn to our fourth guest. Part four, free for all. We've never actually seen a cyber war. Countries haven't declared war on each other in cyberspace. So we don't know what it looks like. We know what cyber operations look like, and they're all over the map from espionage to destructive, big and little, targeted and broad. So far, nobody has said, you did this to me. I'm going to war with you. So we don't actually know what cyber will look like. We don't know what war looks like with a cyber dimension. You know, a little bit with the Iraqi wars, but they were a long time ago. So this is all new and untested for pretty much everybody. Bruce Shiner is an American cryptographer and cybersecurity expert. He has written a number of fantastic books on the subject and is currently teaching it as a lecturer at Harvard University, as well as being a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. He joins us today. We imagine that... Uh, Cyber weapons would take out enemy uh, military systems, possibly enemy civilian infrastructure, possibly communications. And so you can imagine if a country is going to attack another in cyberspace, they would disable the government as best they could. They would disable communications and transport, right? all the things you could imagine that might happen with a conventional war could happen, except the vector would be the internet, right? So it's not that there's something different. It's just that the way the attack is delivered is different. Now, there are lots of limited wars where those things don't happen, and they probably wouldn't happen in cyberspace either. 
But, you know, this is such a new ground. And everyone talks about cyber war. What we really see a lot more of are different flavors of cyber conflict. Can you take me through it? How can cyber warfare destroy something like a communication network with a physical presence? So you could disable the computers. And maybe you do that for an hour, or maybe if you're really good, you can do that for a day or for a week. Uh, we know that uh, you can attack the power grid. So a way to dis- disable kind of, kind of anything is to disable the power that it feeds on. So you could do it that way. Um, you know, then you can get creative and kind of do weird stuff. I mean, like, you know, you, someone, uh, you get ransomware on your phone. You can't, uh, you can't use it anymore or ransomware against a city or a hospital. So we've seen lots of computer networks disabled through that kind of attack. So, you know, those are the sort of things you might imagine. We talked about it a little bit before with a previous guest, but can you take us through how zero-day vulnerabilities are exploited in this kind of warfare? All computer code has bugs. A lot of reasons for this, uh, mostly because we don't know how to write bug-free code. You know, as a, as a society, we don't know. Modern software has thousands, tens of thousands of bugs in it. Uh, they are obscure. They tend, you not don't see them. But, you know, there are bugs that affect operation. And occasionally uh, there are problems and systems crash. You, know, you read about that in the news. There are bugs that are also vulnerabilities, which means that someone can use that bug, that mistaken programming, to manipulate the computer into doing something that the designers didn't intend possibly remotely over the internet, possibly uh, if they have to, if they hold the device, these are vulnerabilities. Vulnerabilities is one of the ways attackers hack into computers and networks. If I find a vulnerability in your computer, I might be able to send you an email with an attachment. You click on the attachment, I could take over the computer, read the files, download them, change them. And that would be an example. Right. So vulnerabilities are discovered in a variety of ways. They are discovered by the software vendor during testing, and then they're patched. They're discovered by researchers, which hopefully tell the vendor, and then they're patched, and then they're publicized. We read read an academic paper about it. And there are vulnerabilities that are discovered by the attackers and used offensively. Now, by attacker, I don't mean good guy versus bad guy. The attacker could be right, the United States government, who's using it to defend the United States against terrorism. The attacker could be the Chinese government, who is using it to jail and torture dissidents, and everything in between. When a vulnerability is used in the wild right, by attackers before the software vendor knows about it, that's called a zero-day vulnerability. And they are especially nasty because everybody's vulnerable to them. If I find a vulnerability in Windows, in the Mac OS, in Android, and I use it for the offense, everybody who uses that particular operating system, computer, thing, is vulnerable. That's a zero day. The, The first time we in the community find out about it is when it's being used offensively. The zeroth day. All the major players here launch lots and lots of attacks all the time. You know, are they doing it to practice something or maybe leave something behind? Or what are all these probing attacks for? There's lots of ways to uh, add attacks into a system. 
So we believe that uh, the Russians are probing the U.S. power grid. Actually, the Americans are probing the Russian power grid. And one of the things that both sides are doing are leaving in uh, pieces of code, ways to get back in, uh, just pieces of code that can cause destruction, lying dormant there in case they're ever needed at some later date and they could be activated. And this is certainly a way uh, different uh, different groups hack systems. And if you think about what the Russians did in Solar Winds, they hacked a uh, the company Solar Winds hacked their update process, inserted a piece of code into a legitimate update that when users downloaded it, they also downloaded the malicious code and suddenly their networks were vulnerable. Right. So here's something that was deliberately placed and lying dormant until users uh, download the update. Uh, we worry about uh, that in 5G. We worry that the Chinese-made networking equipment contains deliberately placed vulnerabilities and pieces of code that in the event of hostilities, the Chinese can turn it on and eavesdrop on us or make the uh, equipment not work or do something. Right? We know that... Uh, the United States has actually done that to uh, Huawei equipment uh, destined for China. So this adding uh, backdoors, adding vulnerabilities, adding malicious code, uh, seems like everybody does that. And what do you think the Russian aims are with the US power grid? Presumably, they're adding vulnerabilities into the power grid so they can make use of them later. And how do they make use of them if there's a war? Do they make use of them in... Uh, Treaty negotiations, I have no idea. Hopefully you find a political scientist who can navigate all of that. I'm just a security guy. What are your thoughts on the fact that 85% of the US's critical infrastructure is in private companies' hands? So they often don't keep up to date with their cybersecurity as they probably should. Do you think this poses a distinct vulnerability that the US has compared to, let's say, Russia or China? You know, there is a lot of issues with the fact that the United States our critical infrastructure is in private hands, you know, and expecting, you know, a power company in the middle of Ohio to defend itself against the Russian government kind of isn't a fair fight. Just like we can't expect an election official in Florida to defend themselves against the Russian government. So, I mean, there's, there's benefits in our distributed nature of doing things. The fact that uh, that stuff isn't state owned, state run, but there are vulnerabilities because, it, it's hard to see how these private companies can defend themselves. On the other hand, we have a lot of really good private cybersecurity companies that have huge amounts of expertise that rival lots of governments because there's a market for that. So this kind of cuts both ways. These days, North Korea makes a big part of its GDP by hacking into banks and financial institutions. Do you think other private companies make it into this sector as well, seeing how profitable it is? Yeah, I mean, private companies could go into the uh, hacking banks business, but then they become organized crime and they get arrested. It's just I, I just don't see the business model for a company like on the NASDAQ to say we are not going to do whatever we did. We're now becoming a criminal enterprise. I just feel like everyone gets arrested within a week. Cyber warfare has been taking huge leaps and bounds each and every year at the moment, but the big improvement will likely be the implementation of AI. 
what impact do you think AI will have in cyber warfare going forward? AI is a big wild card. AI is going to affect everything and cyber attack, cyber defense as well. I mean, of course. The real question is, you know, which side will it benefit more? Right? Will AI attackers be better than AI defenders? And it's not at all obvious what the answer to that question is. I think in the near term, AI benefits the defense because already the attackers are moving at computer speeds and the defenders largely are not. And speeding up defense to computer speeds would be an enormous improvement. But over the long haul, I don't think we have any idea whether attack or defense is favored by AI technologies. When you launch a cyber attack, is it a specific pinpoint strike or you know, frankly, if you're launching a system, is it likely to spread through the entire system? It's actually very hard to target an attack. On the internet, everything is connected. And Stuxnet is a great example. It was a highly targeted attack. And it seems to have gotten out by mistake that uh, it wasn't intended to, to leak. It leaked a little bit. And it had a self-destruct mechanism because, you know, American cyber weapons are, are built that way. You know, comparing that to something like uh, NotPetya, which was a Russian cyber weapon uh, that was aimed at Ukraine, that escaped to the entire world. It turned out that anybody, any company that had a single Ukrainian employee uh, was vulnerable. And then it expanded even out from there. So... These attacks do broaden out. It is very hard to, to precisely target some of these things. Now, you know, that's a simplistic answer. There are all sorts of attacks that are very precisely targeted that never get out because they're not that sort of attack. With these attacker codes getting out there, could someone who maybe doesn't have as an advanced a cyber warfare program like in India or a smaller country, would they be able to buy these codes simply edit what they need to, and then relaunch it as their own first-class weapon. One of the interesting things about cyber weapons is that once you use them, you publish them. So, you know, once Stuxnet is used by the U.S.-Israel attack Iran, and the world knows about it, anybody can look at it, reverse engineer it, figure it out, and use those same pieces of code, or at least the ideas, in, in their code. So yes, there's this weird democratization in cyber weapons that doesn't exist in conventional weapons. If I fire a missile at you, you can't look at the wreckage, figure out how the missile works, build your own and fire it back. But you can sort of do that with a cyber weapon. Well, if that's the case, are all the major players just holding back their best weapons for a rainy day, knowing that they won't, don't want to use them because once they use them, it's out there? All countries are holding back their best stuff. All countries are stockpiling zero days and cyber weapons in the event uh, they might need them. Because you're right, firing them is, uh, is exposing them. And these weapons have a half-life. So if you build a cyber weapon based on a vulnerability in Microsoft Windows that you've discovered through painstaking research, possibly six months later, some academic discovers the same vulnerability, tells Microsoft, and they patch it. And suddenly your cyber weapon doesn't work anymore. So there is this constant evolving because the vulnerabilities change. But we believe that many countries are stockpiling zero days and cyber weapons. 
is it just nation states we have to worry about with these capabilities or is it also you know a kid with a gaming pc that could be causing these kind of problems I mean, hacking is egalitarian there are hackers who are lone individuals uh, maybe they're uh, underage maybe they're adults there are attackers that are criminals there are attackers that are nation states and everything in between and they're all using the same tools and techniques sure if you've got a budget and a bureaucracy you're going to be more sophisticated so countries and large criminal organizations will have better tools than lone individuals but you know we see lots of hacks that are individual people and lots of hacks that are governments and you really can't tell by the type of attack you know you can doubt you can look at the code and say wow this is complex there must be bureaucracy behind it but lots of criminal hacking tools are just as effective. They're just sloppier. Where do you see the future of a cyber warfare going? Will it be front and center in most armies' arsenals, or will it continue to just be a additional damage multiplier for most countries? You know, we're now in a world where everything is connected, everything is computerized, and any future war will have a cyber component. Whether it'll be big, whether it'll be small, how effective it'll be, I don't think we know. But certainly, the militarization of cyberspace is not something that's going away. And I would expect this to be uh, an issue for, uh, for decades to come. War by other means. It's hard to imagine how devastating a cyber strike against the United States would be. Without communication, panic and chaos will almost inevitably break out. If one pipeline going down freezes all the Florida gas stations, I can't imagine what a city grid going down would do. Just as a demonstration about how herd mentality and chaos works, during the Y2K bug where everyone thought the year 2000 would come and wipe out all the computers, everyone began to panic. So in 11.55, a lot of people filled up their bathtubs full of water. All the computer systems were absolutely fine, but because everybody filled their bathtub up at the same time, supply couldn't be met. And when the final people at 11.58 turned on their bathtub and no water came out, they started to panic. And even though nothing was really wrong, panic ensued. So what if there was really something wrong? Because we are very integrated with our technology these days. Even when it comes to the U.S. Armed Forces, we can't really go without it. Without GPS guidance, a U.S. state-of-the-art missile is just a falling tin can. And without internet connection, drones and planes can't get off the ground, making any sort of retaliation incredibly difficult if a large-scale cyber attack were to happen. The more disturbing thing as well is the fact that we don't really know how sophisticated the other side's weapons really are as all sides here are holding back their best stuff. At least during the Cold War, when the Russians launched a larger, more powerful nuclear weapon, we could get a rough gauge in its strength based on things like earth tremors, radiation, and satellite footage. But with cyber warfare, we really don't know what they have until it's far too late. And that cuts both ways, as we don't know if the backdoors and exploits we discovered have been patched in the Russian and Chinese systems. Will they still be there when the time comes for us to use them? Or will they have just been patched through routine maintenance? 
there are so many variables in this kind of warfare, even geopolitically. For example, Russia has launched cyber attacks against many of its neighbors. The US has destroyed facilities. China regularly attacks regional enemies, and yet no punishment or response. These plans keep ramping up with bigger and bolder attacks, yet no response. Which raises the question, is there a line that if they cross, will elicit a response? And if so, what should that response be? Is it rational to launch a conventional airstrike against a cyber warfare facility that just opened a dam and killed thousands of your civilians, knowing that you can never be 100% sure it was actually them? Or do we continue to just brush it off, even though by any other means these attacks would likely constitute an act of war? This will be our generation's question to answer. Where do you draw the line? How far can we push cyber warfare? Thank you so much for everybody who tuned into this episode. We have been requested to do a cyber warfare episode for ages now, and it took us about two months to properly put this one together. It was also just a sheer coincidence that this week the US came under a serious cyber attack, and it wasn't some form of viral marketing by the red line. Last week we had our first geopolitics pub quiz, where people from around the world tuned in to do a live virtual pub quiz with myself hosting. The winners of which took home the very first Redline coffee mug. And if you want your own coffee mug, they will be available on our website. But again, congratulations to all the winners of the pub quiz. It was fantastic seeing so many of you there. I had an absolute blast doing it, and it certainly won't be the last one we do. If you want to find out more about these events like the pub quizzes, or simply follow up on polls, stats, maps, and everything else we post, you can follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Discord, Reddit, and Swell at the handle at the Red Line Pod. Or you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Mike Elliott Oz. Oz is in Australia. This show would not be possible without the support of our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each week to help us keep this show going. This show takes independence very seriously, and we don't take money from corporate sponsors. Even though this episode feels like it probably would have been a perfect one for a NordVPN sponsorship. We do this so we can keep the show reporting on what we want to report and go where the story takes us. And the sole reason we have the ability to do this is because of our amazing Patreons, who also get to join in on live Q&As, get extra materials from the show, and get one-on-one meetups with myself. Our Patreon donations all 100% go back into the program, helping us pay for staff, programs, hosting, and websites, as well as lawyers and all the other good stuff that is essential for running a show like this. I cannot thank all of our current Patreons enough for their support, and if you feel like you can spare a couple of dollars a week, we would greatly appreciate it. We'll be doing our next live Q&A session of beers for our Patreons coming up in the next few weeks, so keep an eye on your inboxes this week for dates and times. A huge thank you to all of our guests this week. Tom Uren works with one of the most respected think tanks in Australia. When I was putting together guests for this episode, he came highly recommended to me. Tom has an amazing knowledge of not only how these attacks are carried out, but also the logistics that goes into them. So if you want to follow Tom's great work and learn a bit more about it, you can find him on the Twitter handle at TomatoSpy. Brandon Valeriano keeps up the tradition of the Cato Institute being so great to work with. 
Brandon has been on a number of panels and committees that have helped focus and shape the U.S. cyber policy, and it was amazing to chat with him about it. You can find Brandon on Twitter with the handle at DrBVaylor. Jody Westby is on the front line here, looking at the issue from both the public and private sectors. Her work in this area has been fascinating, and some of the insights she gave me into this issue were phenomenal. We were very lucky to have her on this program. You can find her on the Twitter handle at Jody Westby. Bruce Schneier is one of the quickest and most fantastic experts we have ever had on the program. He was able to take us through what is an incredibly complicated topic and really break it down. I left my interview with Bruce incredibly impressed, and I hope you did too. Hopefully, we'll be able to have him back on the program sometime soon. And if you want to follow his amazing work, you can find him on the Twitter handle at SchneierBlog. As has now become a part of the show, here are the three recommended reads for this episode if you wanted to take your study into this topic even further. The first would be Click Here to Kill Everybody by Bruce Schneier, all about how smart devices have dramatically changed the security landscape today. The second would be Cyber Strategy by Brandon Valeriano, all about how cyber warfare is carried out in the 21st century. And the third would be Cyber Dragon by Dean Cheng, focusing on China's cyber capabilities in particular. These are all great reads with links to them being available on our website. Once again, the show would not be possible without my fantastic staff. Mark Spencer has been doing the extra voiceover work for us for a while now, and we couldn't be prouder to have him as part of the team. Mark is currently putting together a petition to get Apple to add a climate category to the podcast section so people can more easily find information on how climate change is affecting the world and what we can do to help. It's a great initiative, and if you want to go check it out, you can find him on the Twitter handle at Climactic Show. Owen Swift has taken a huge role here at the show, acting as our producer, writer, researcher, and helping to redesign the website. The show has been taking major steps forward thanks to his work, and I'm very happy to say he'll be doing a bit more on an episode coming up. But if you want to get some of his great insights, you can follow Owen on Twitter at the handle at Owen A. Swift. Marissa Rafter has just joined the team as our animator, turning these episodes into short videos, with her first episodes on Rare Earths and Guyana being absolutely fantastic. She's worked with some of the biggest names in the industry, and now she's working with us, and we're so proud to have her a part of the team. Joe Hawthorne once again does amazing work with his audio skills. He cleans all of the audio up to make it sound absolutely crisp before it gets to you guys. And the reason the show sounds anywhere near as competent as it does is largely thanks to Joe. We're very, very happy to have him as part of the team. My very last thanks today, though, goes out to you for tuning into the show. Watching the show get bigger and bigger has been nothing but amazing for me. Watching a community build up around our Twitter, our Discord, and even just having people reach out to me to ask questions has been amazing amazing no matter what goals the show kicks no matter how many streams we get that is the thing that consistently sticks with me how many great people i've met through the show how many of you have reached out to me and how many i've enjoyed connecting with so thank you to all of you who have reached out the show will be back in another fortnight with another international episode but until then thank you and good night The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline Podcast. 
They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.